Good morning, Plum Creek. Great to see all of you here today. I hope you've had a good week, and I hope you're ready to jump into part two of this series called The Gospel. Like I said last Sunday, the word gospel means good news. And when we say good news, we're talking about Jesus. Now, this gospel series is a journey that's going to take us a while because we're following the story of Jesus in chronological order from beginning to end. Last week was the introduction to this long journey, but if you happen to miss last Sunday, you don't have to worry. We're still just getting started. Today is actually part two of the introduction. Now, to make sure we're on the same page here, there are four books in the Bible that tell the story of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These four books are called the Gospels, and last week we looked at the introductions of Mark, Luke, and John. We saved Matthew for last because his introduction is pretty unique. Matthew begins with the genealogy of Jesus Christ. I can tell that you're excited already, so let's jump in. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, open up to Matthew chapter 1. That's where we'll be spending most of our time today. Now, when you get to Matthew 1, you'll see that this genealogy, it's really just a list of names. And usually when we get to a part of the Bible like this, we just skip down to something a little more interesting. For example, if, if you go down to verse 18, Matthew starts to tell about the birth of Jesus. So why not start there? Well, in the past, that was my attitude exactly. Some parts of the Bible are just a little tougher to get into. But then uh, several years ago, I got some help from a Christian singer and songwriter named Andrew Peterson. Andrew wrote a song that basically goes through the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1. And the first time I heard that song, I was kind of surprised. I started to see that this passage actually deserves a little more attention. So I'm going to try to give you the same thing that Andrew gave to me. I'm going to try to sing this song. And uh, if you can, follow along with me in your Bible or up on the screen. You can count how many mistakes I make. So here goes. It's called Matthew's Begats. Well, Abraham had Isaac, Isaac he had Jacob, Jacob he had Judah and his kin. Then Perez and Zerah came from Judah's woman Tamar. Perez he brought Hezron up and then King Aram, then Amenadab, then Nashin, who was then the dad of Salmon, who with Rahab fathered Boaz. Ruth, she married Boaz, who had Obed, who had Jesse. Jesse, he had David, who we know as King. David, he had Solomon by dead Uriah's wife. Solomon, well, you all know him. He had good old Rehoboam, followed by Abijah. He had Asa. Asa had Jehoshaphat, had Joram, had Isaiah, who had Jotham, then Ahaz and Hezekiah. Followed by Manasseh, who had Amon, who was a man. 
father of a good boy named Josiah, who grandfathered Jehoiakim, who caused the Babylonian captivity because he was a Then he had Shealtiel, who begat Zerubbabel, who had Abiud, who had Eliakim. Eliakim had Azer, who had Zadok, who had Achim. Achim was the father of Eliad. Then he had Eliezer, who had Nathan, who had Jacob. Now listen very closely, I don't want to sing this twice. Jacob was the father of Joseph, husband of Mary, mother of Christ. So there you go. That's just a very cool song, even though it's a pain trying to remember all those names. I've been singing it about three times a day for over a week now in the shower, mowing the lawn, you name it. But the reason I love this song is because it helped me see that this genealogy is more than just a list of names. There is a story here. Every one of these names represents a real person who who lived a real life, and each individual had their own story. And when you combine them all together, they, they make up one big story. So what's the big picture here? I'll give you a summary. Matthew chapter 1 shows us how God worked throughout history to bring a Savior into the world. Now, if you are willing to spend a little time on this genealogy, you can get a whole new perspective on the backstory of Jesus and why that backstory matters to us. Now, before we dig in here, I should probably mention that Matthew wrote this gospel to a particular audience. He was writing primarily to the Jewish people. And when first century Jews read an account of someone who claimed to be the Messiah, they were looking for a few certain things to appear. One thing they would look for was a genealogy. Genealogies were a way to show that your lineage was pure. In fact, some of your legal rights were determined by your ability to prove your heritage. So when Matthew starts off with this list of names... It's not weird. It's weird to us, but for that original Jewish audience, it makes perfect sense. See, Matthew wanted to show how Jesus was connected to some very important names in Israel's history. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. Matthew writes, This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David and the son of Abraham. So right away here, Matthew makes a bold claim. He says, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the long-awaited Savior that was promised by God. Now, the Jews had been looking for the Messiah for hundreds of years by this point. And any Jew would be asking, why should we believe that Jesus is the one we've been waiting for? And Matthew starts presenting the evidence in this very first verse. He says, Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. He's the direct descendant of both David and Abraham. And why is that important? Well, God gave two very significant promises to these Old Testament heroes. Here's what God said to Abraham. He said, through your descendants, through your lineage, all of the earth will be blessed. 
And Jesus was the fulfillment of that promise to Abraham. Uh, Through Jesus, God would offer salvation and forgiveness, not just to the Jews, but to the entire world. And then there was God's promise to King David. Check this out. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes this promise to David, and he says, When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The word forever is very important there. He says one of David's offspring would establish a kingdom that would last forever. Now, the Jews were very familiar with that promise, and they also knew the old kingdom of Israel fell apart. So because of what God said, they knew that the Messiah would come from the line of David, who was the greatest king in Israel's history. And the Jews also saw this Messiah as someone who would bring Israel back to the power and the glory of David's time. This new kingdom was coming, and this time it would never end. They would never be pushed around again by the Romans or by anybody else. The problem is, though, God's promise to David wasn't really about that. Jesus came to establish God's kingdom, and God's kingdom is the one that will last forever. And Jesus invites all of us to be a part of it. So that brings us back to Matthew's genealogy. Since the Jews would be checking to see if Jesus came from the line of David, Matthew wanted to prove as clearly as possible that Jesus fit the bill. In fact, in the structure of this genealogy, Matthew goes overboard to emphasize the connection between Jesus and David. This list of names is is divided into three equal sections, and each section has exactly 14 names. I want you to remember that. Part one leads up to David. Part two leads up to the Babylonian exile, and part three leads up to Jesus. So three equal sections of names, 14, 14, and 14. And this is interesting because Matthew actually skips a few names to keep it nice and even like that. He just leaves out a few generations. And that seems a little strange to us because in modern times, we would want a genealogy to be pretty detailed. You don't go skipping generations. But in the Jewish world at that time, things were different. They didn't care so much about the details. To them, it was more important for a genealogy to highlight certain individuals in a memorable way. And that's exactly what Matthew does. Remember those three equal sections of 14 names? I learned something cool this week. In the Hebrew language, every letter had a specific number attached to it. Children would learn math with each number assigned to a letter. And if you take the name of David and add up the numbers assigned to each letter, guess what you get? It adds up to 14. Pretty cool. So for Matthew's Jewish audience, the point is loud and clear. Matthew writes this genealogy to show that Jesus, the Messiah, is truly from the kingly line of David because that meant he was heir to the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. Now, so far, 
we've seen that Matthew is making the case that Jesus is the Messiah, the most significant person in history. Later, Matthew will tell us that Jesus is not just historically significant. He is the Son of God. He is worthy of glory and even worship. So with that in mind, we would expect that Matthew would present Jesus in the best possible light. But here's where things get crazy. In this genealogy, instead of highlighting the noble heritage of Jesus, Matthew points out the most embarrassing parts of his backstory. Now let's go back and read the first section of 14 names, verses 2 through 6. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the, mother of, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. So like I said earlier, that's just a list of names, and I wouldn't blame you if you started daydreaming as I read through that. But we're going to meet some of the people in this genealogy, and this will get interesting because we will find some scandals here. But we'll also find some good news that applies to us. First, we'll see that God will reclaim anyone who returns to him. Second, we'll see that people cannot ruin God's plans. And finally, we'll see that God will turn a nobody into a somebody. So let's get back to this first section of 14 names. As you go through this list, it's actually shocking. Matthew digs up a complicated past He reminds us of the the lineage of Jesus, that it includes several people who did some shameful things. Look at Perez, for example, up in verse 3. Perez was the son of a man named Judah and a woman named Tamar. Now, in most of this genealogy, Matthew leaves out the women, but he mentions Tamar to remind us of a story that most people would rather sweep under the rug. You see, Tamar was actually Judah's daughter-in-law. So Judah had a baby with his son's wife. And if you want to read the whole story, you can find it in Genesis chapter 38. And I'll warn you, it's a little like the old Jerry Springer show. But doesn't that strike you as very, very odd? Matthew goes out of his way to bring up this sketchy past. And he doesn't stop there. As you go down the list, you'll find people known for adultery and murder and straight-up evil. So why would Matthew do that? Why would he intentionally make the lineage of Jesus look bad? Because we probably wouldn't do that, would we? Think about it. Let's say you finally give in to one of those ads for Ancestry.com or 23andMe, and you say, all right, you got me curious. I'll give you a sample of my blood, and then you tell me what we can learn from my DNA. And let's say the results come back, and they say, Congratulations! Your ancestors were murderers and prostitutes, and they also committed incest. If that's what you discovered, what would you do next? You'd keep quiet, wouldn't you? You'd be like, Ain't nobody gots to know. <laughs> but Matthew is the opposite. 
He says, actually, I do want people to know about this past. This family history tells us something important about God. And here's what we learn. God will reclaim anyone who returns to him. As I look through this list, I think one of the best examples of this principle is a woman named Rahab. She's there in verse 5. And it's a little crazy that Rahab appears here for a couple of reasons. First, she's a woman. Now, we just mentioned Tamar, but there are actually five women in this genealogy. And this was very uncommon because women were not usually mentioned in a Jewish genealogy. They were usually left out because at that time, women were not valued the way they should have been. In both Greek and Jewish culture, women had no legal rights. They couldn't inherit property or give testimony in a court of law. A woman was completely under her husband's power. She was treated more like a thing than a person. She was like property. But God never devalued women. Instead of leaving them out of the story, he said, no, women are important, and I want to make it known how significant they are to me. So that's one interesting thing about Rahab being on this list. But an even bigger surprise is that she was a prostitute. And again, we might ask, Matthew, why are you including a prostitute on this list? But actually, Rahab is an incredible woman. We can read about her in Joshua chapter 2. And the story is this. God's people had left Egypt. They escaped from slavery. And Moses had gotten them so far, but then Moses passed the, the torch on to Joshua. Joshua was trying to bring these people into the promised land under God's direction, but they had a couple of obstacles in the way. One of the obstacles was the city of Jericho. Um, many of us know about the battle of Jericho and how it was ultimately defeated when the Israelites marched around the city and the walls came tumbling down. But Rahab was a resident of Jericho, and before the army of Israel showed up, Joshua sent two spies into the city to scope the place out. Those spies ended up at Rahab's house. Rahab, the prostitute. But she recognized there was something special about these two spies, and she decided to protect them. She actually hid them. She hid them up on the roof under a couple stalks of flax. And then the king of Jericho shows up, and he says, Ma'am, we are aware that you've had some contact with these spies. We want you to tell us where they've gone. Give us all the information you have. But Rahab didn't play the game. She not only refused to give the spies away, she also sent the authorities off in the wrong direction. She risked her own safety to protect these Israelite spies. And why would she do that? Remember, she is a citizen of Jericho. So she's turning against her own king and her own people. It doesn't make sense. But the truth is, it does make sense when you know about Rahab's faith. We read about her faith in Joshua chapter 2, verse 8. Here's what she recognized about the two spies and the people of Israel. Before the spies laid down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. 
We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. So despite her country of origin, despite her background, Rahab was willing to recognize that the God of Israel was the one true God. And she knew that only the true God could accomplish these things for Israel. And she wanted to make sure she was on God's side. So she put her faith in the God of Israel. And she was rewarded for her faith. She gave the spies one request. She said, just protect me and my family when you come into the city. And Joshua honored that request. On, uh, out of the entire town, Rahab, her parents, and her brothers and sisters were the only ones who weren't killed. And Rahab became a hero. If we flip over to the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 11, we find sort of a hall of fame of people with great faith. And Rahab appears in this hall of fame. Hebrews 11.31 says, By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And the amazing thing is the next verse, which says, I don't have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. He, He didn't have time to tell about David and the prophets, but he did have time to talk about Rahab the prostitute. That shows how far this woman came. God took her from her very low status, and he said, this woman has potential. This woman can do something important for me, and when she turns to me in faith, I will take her from who she was and make her into who she can be. Now, that is phenomenal. It's the good news that God cares about us, no matter who we are, no matter what's in our past, And he can wipe away our past and give us a great future. One more interesting thing about Rahab is her name. The name Rahab means wide or spacious. I can understand why that's not a popular name for women these days. But it fits Rahab in a way because Rahab shows how wide the mercy of God can be. God's grace will take someone we would have written off And turn that person into someone so special. Someone who is forgiven. Someone who has been reclaimed. So here's what we should remember about this woman. Rahab shows us the wideness of God's grace. And for all of us who have felt guilt and shame, like I'm sure Rahab did, we should remember that God looks at us and he says, you're someone with potential. I can wipe away your past. I can reclaim you. I can give you hope and a great future. God will reclaim anyone who returns to him. But we learned something else about God from Matthew's genealogy. We also learned that people can't ruin God's plans. Let's read that next section in Matthew chapter 1, starting with verse 6. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. 
Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. You might not have noticed, but the section we just read is very tragic. This section shows that God's will for his people was diverted through some terrible choices. See, whenever we do what, what we feel like doing all of the time, our decisions can lead to disasters that never had to happen. We can make a horrible mess when it was completely avoidable. A few years ago, there was a, a news story about a Brazilian man named Antonio. And one night, Antonio tried to step in and help his wife. She was afraid to enter their house because some kind of animal was sitting right there by the entrance. So Antonio went out to save the day, and he recognized this animal as a possum. So naturally, he decided to get the animal out of the way by slapping it. I mean, We've all slapped a possum at one time or another, right? Unfortunately, though, this confrontation did not go well. The man discovered that this animal was, in fact, not a possum. It was a porcupine. <laughs> Check out this picture. Yeah. Now, I'm happy to tell you that after a tetanus shot and a round of antibiotics, uh, Antonio did recover. But don't forget that this animal is also a victim in this story. Somewhere, there's a porcupine with a hand-shaped bald spot. <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't have a picture of that. I wish I did. But you know, slapping the porcupine was a bad decision. Antonio, you brought that mess on yourself. But back to Matthew's genealogy. This section is talking about the kings. The kings who were supposed to be leading God's people in the right direction, along God's path. But tragically, most of these kings were pathetic. They may have had some political accomplishments, but spiritually, most of them were bankrupt. One particular disaster was a man named Manasseh, a king of Judah. Now, you'd think the nation of Judah would have learned some lessons over the years. Because after David and Solomon, the kingdom of Israel was divided up into two sections. You had Israel in the north and Judah down south. Israel up north, they continued on their evil path and they were destroyed by the Assyrians. Uh, Israel became a people that was no longer a people. They were scattered to the winds. They were assimilated into other cultures and they're gone. You'd think Judah down south would have learned from that, but they didn't. Israel had been warned, God sent them prophets, and now God was sending prophets to Judah. And he says, Judah, if you don't change, the same thing that happened to Israel is going to happen to you. And then here's what we read about Manasseh in 2 Kings chapter 21, starting with verse 10. The Lord said through his servants, the prophets, Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these detestable sins. He's done more evil than the Amorites who preceded him and has led Judah into sin with his idols. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. 
I am going to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. This is a God who's had enough. He's given these people so many chances, and finally he says, that's it. Manasseh was a terrible king. He led the country deeper into idolatry than ever before. He even condoned child sacrifice. And God couldn't take it anymore. Now, there were a few good kings scattered in there, like the good boy named Josiah. And he tried to put the brakes on and stop this ride toward evil. But right after Josiah, you have three more kings, and they were the last three kings of Judah. The Bible tells us about these kings, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. And the report is pretty consistent. The Bible says, Jehoiakim did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his fathers had done. And then it says about Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father had done. And then Zedekiah, Zedekiah did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as Jehoiakim had done. They didn't listen. They didn't learn. So what happened? God kept the promise that he made to Manasseh. And God allowed Judah to experience the consequences of their sin. The Babylonians came and destroyed Jerusalem. They burned the temple to the ground. All the gold and the silver was carted off to Babylon. And the people of Jerusalem were carried away into exile. Then we learn something else here. We learned that God will not stop loving his people. As belligerent as they are, he still loves them. And 70 years later, a group of exiles in Babylon... They turned back to God, and they wanted to return to their homeland and rebuild the temple. And God allowed that to happen. A remnant came back to Jerusalem, and the temple was rebuilt. Worship in the temple began again, and the people of Judah were preserved. And why is that important? Well, remember what happened to Israel, the northern kingdom? Israel was destroyed and scattered, and they were no longer a people. And if the same thing had happened to Judah, that would have been a disaster not only for them, but for all people everywhere. Because if the line of Judah had ended, we wouldn't have the final section of this genealogy. There would be no Messiah, because the Messiah had to come from the line of David. So, you see what we learn here. We learn that God will accomplish his purpose with us or without us. The question is, will we surrender to God's plan or will we continue to resist? We need to ask that question on a regular basis as individuals and also as a church. We don't want to be on the wrong side of God's will. You can be on the wrong side of history, but you don't want to be on the wrong side of God's will. And he will accomplish his purpose with us or without us. Okay, we have one last section here. And we'll just look at it very briefly. Let's read again from Matthew 1, starting at verse 12. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, Abiad the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliad, Eliad the father of Eliezer, Eliezer the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. 
Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. And that's it. That's the genealogy. And there's something that stands out to me about this last section. It's the nine names from Abiad to Jacob. We don't know anything about them. Outside of this list, as far as the Bible goes, they're nobodies. We don't have any information except that their names appear in this genealogy. But you know, God still used them for something very, very significant. Without these names on the list, the chain would have been broken. So you see it? God will turn a nobody into a somebody. And you know, a lot of us can relate to these names in the final section here. Because a lot of us feel like we don't really stand out. It's not like we've done great things for God. But the reality is, God has a different perspective. Check out what he tells us in Galatians chapter 4. This is great stuff. Listen. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. So there is great news for us here. It says that Jesus came exactly at the right time. God worked throughout history to preserve the line of Abraham and David. And then the Messiah came to redeem all of us who needed forgiveness. He bought our freedom when he went to the cross and paid the price for our sins. And if you accept that gift of forgiveness and you put your faith in Jesus and surrender your life to him, what does it say? Verse 7. You are not a slave anymore. You've been adopted. You've been grafted into this family tree. You are the continuation of the story in Matthew chapter 1. You've received the status of a son because only a son was fully entitled to the inheritance that the father would give. And God wanted us to have this inheritance all along. I love how all of it connects together. When you belong to Christ, you are that nobody that turned into a somebody. And it doesn't matter what's in your past. It doesn't matter if someone tried to ruin God's plans for you. He will accomplish his purpose. And when you return to him, he will cover your guilt and your shame. And he reclaims you and restores you. So this is the good news. If you have surrendered your life to Christ, you're on this list You are a descendant of this same genealogy. So in my humble opinion, Matthew chapter 1 is not boring. It's a reminder that there's nothing better than the story of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for the passage that we read today. We might be tempted to skip over it, but I, I thank you for the story that's there, for some of the surprises that we find, how... None of us are beyond your grace. We can turn to you, and you will accept us. And from where we are today, you can take us exactly where we need to be. You give us hope and a future. And we thank you for that. We thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's